0: Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. New controversial details have emerged from the City of Hamilton's Auditor's Report. Hamilton taxpayers are going to be paying a little more for water use next year. A group of Indigenous people are calling for change in Hamilton. We preview the ticats alouettes Eastern Semifinal. Habitat Hamilton is celebrating the handover of two homes in the city. And what the heck is cuffing season? The GMH podcast starts now.
1: This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML.
0: The latest fraud and waste reports released last week from Hamilton's auditor shows that there was a misuse of taxpayer dollars and resources. However, some new and controversial details have now come forward, including that some city employees misused that taxpayer dollars and resources to a large amount of money. Charles Brown is the auditor with the city of Hamilton and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Charles. Good morning, Rick. So what did your report uncover?
2: Uh, so the report, it's uh, the second year, the second annual report since we launched our uh, fraud and waste hotline, which is a tool that citizens and employees can use uh, to confidentially report complaints of suspected fraud and wrongdoing. So this was a uh, largely a report about the activity for the whole year, but it did include some, uh, some incidents that we report um, that you mentioned. Um, it uncovered, um, there were 80 complaints overall in the year, uh, 59% of them coming from employees and the other portion from uh, citizens, and we substantiated uh, 32% of them. So there's a lot of activity that we hadn't known about, Um, As you mentioned, there was some significant uh, dollars involved in some of this activity. We identified uh, at least $235,000 in in fraud and waste through uh, 24 investigations that were undertaken.
0: So if you substantiated 32%, does that mean that the 68% didn't happen or you just couldn't prove that it happened?
2: Um, we, 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 call it unsubstantiated. Largely, it's uh, not only not proven, but we don't believe it to be true in those cases.
0: Okay. Can you share any examples of government waste and fraudulent activity that uh, you had proved?
2: Uh, so I think one of the, one of the biggest things that we identified was, were issues with conflicts of interest that were occurring through employees, either socializing or fraternizing or receiving hospitality from from uh, vendors to the city, uh, that's a big one. In fact, it's uh, it's something that we saw uh, the year previous and mentioned in our report. We actually have some commentary on improving policies and procedures and processes in the city uh, to improve that situation. Uh, but the, the, but that was a significant one for us, significant in terms of the impact of such conflicts of interest, but also the amount of work that it took. Uh, it took us, uh, I think, about a year to investigate So sort of starts with a small uh, allegation and then sort of grows from there.
0: Yeah. So would that conflict of interest basically boil down to a city employee accepting something uh, from a a vendor, so to speak, and uh, and get something for that? Is that basically uh, the most common element of this?
2: Yes, that's that's essentially what a conflict of interest is. It can be uh, things like uh, a relative that uh, that's not disclosed to the city. You have somebody working for a company that you've hired, or in other cases it could be socializing, hospitality, and, and the inherent bias that's influ- that, uh, that, that occurs when, when there's a, that kind of influence.
0: So how much did this activity cost taxpayers? Uh,
2: 235000 is our best estimate of, w- of what it costs. That's what we could come up with. It's, it's largely an estimate based on, on a number of things that we uncover in the investigation.
0: Charles Brown is the auditor with the City of Hamilton, joining us to talk about the latest annual fraud and waste report uh, that was uh, or has revealed that uh, there was a misuse of taxpayer dollars and resources. You uh, can't blame our listeners for saying wow, or maybe even something a little more comfortable after hearing this news. What was your reaction when you started seeing this information come in?
2: Uh, well, obviously, uh, you know we're disappointed, but on the other hand, we're we're happy that we can take action and and find that. because there's always something behind activity. There's there's always something that the city can improve uh, to 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 create better awareness and improve the defenses against this kind of activity. And that that's what our fo- main focus is on the systemic improvements that can be made as a result of these uh, these activities. And half of the equation too. It's not just a fraud. Line it's a waste line. You know we we want citizens and, and employees to report where they think things can be made more efficient uh, in the city and and that's uh, that's been a, a a real nugget for us. Uh, a lot of uh, situations have led to systemic improvements. In fact, we've had four audits that were spontaneously done uh, as a result of complaints made that uncovered systemic issues and, 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 and management's currently taking action on them.
0: That's the best news of all. We got about 30 seconds. How many employees were involved in this activity and what do the penalties range uh, between?
2: Oh gosh uh, well, uh, I know there were there were um, eight terminations as a result of the, uh, fraudulent activity and I think there were five other types of disciplinary action. so uh, a substantial number. This year, last year, it was somewhat, uh, somewhat less. Charles, and that's the thing for yeah. For fraud, you don't know what. Uh, you, you, it's a very volatile situation. Any given year it could be different, but yeah. that's what occurred this year.
0: Charles, thank you very much for the time today, and enjoy the rest of your day.
2: Thank you. You too, Rick.
0: That is Charles Brown, Hamilton's auditor on uh, the latest fraud and waste report out of Hamilton City Hall.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: The average Hamilton homeowner is going to pay an extra 32 bucks next year for water and wastewater services after city councilors gave preliminary approval to a 4.28% increase to the water rate budget. Here to join us to tell us more is Nick Winters. He's the interim water director with the City of Hamilton. Good morning, Nick, and welcome to Good Morning Hamilton. Morning, hey, there you are. Let's start with the basics. How is the water rates established?
3: That's an excellent question. So we set the rate and the rate increases on an annual basis, and it's really based on what work needs to be done from a capital rehabilitation and replacement uh, perspective across our water, wastewater, stormwater systems, uh, plus the financial expenses that are required for us to operate and maintain that system. Uh, so to produce water, to treat wastewater, uh, to fix water main breaks, as a few examples.
0: Why the increase then? So what is happening this year that uh, may not have happened in previous years?
3: So the rate does increase every year. Uh, we do have updated financial projections and updated capital project needs. There are some, uh, some unusual circumstances for 2022. Uh, we are looking at some uh, higher than normal forecasted operating pressures, uh, including chemical costs for our... Treatment of water and wastewater. Um, we're seeing some supply chain increases, uh, as is much of uh, the uh, community uh, in certain circumstances. Uh, But then we do have additional projects uh, that we do identify in year that we need to get to. You know, there's some work at the water treatment plant that's been uh, identified as a need for 2022 uh, as an example.
0: Are those projects just general or annual maintenance things or are these like new uh, um, uh, software or new piping or whatever the case is, new infrastructure?
3: Yeah, so it's a mixture of both. Um, we do have annual maintenance programs that uh, are part of our capital financing uh, plan. Uh, but if I was to give you the example from the water treatment plant, you know, in 2021, we completed a, uh, an internal tank inspection uh, where we store our treated water. Um, that that uh, study was completed. It identified it some work. Uh, excuse me, identified the need for some work. Uh, and in 2022, we need to get in there and, and get that work completed.
0: Talking about higher water rates coming up next year with Nick Winters. He's the Interim Water Director with the City of Hamilton. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. You mentioned supply chain increases. Is this uh, a big impact on, on what we're seeing?
3: Uh, it's part of it. Uh, I wouldn't say it's the biggest part of the, the rate increase for 2022. Um, but certainly, as I mentioned, the entire community is experiencing uh, some issues with supply chain, depending upon what it is that you're looking for. We're seeing things uh, such as uh, piping uh, for water maintenance and sewers uh, increasing um, at um, percentages that are a little bit beyond inflation. Uh, we're seeing the same thing. Um, certainly with our, uh, our chemicals, um, you know, chlorine was an example uh, that we gave to council on our, at our meeting on Monday, uh, where we're seeing a, an actually quite significant increase for uh, 2022 due to some unusual circumstances in the market.
0: This uh, still needs full council appro- approval, but as it stands now, residents will be paying at least the average residential bill will be about $785. How does that compare to other communities in the province?
3: It's very competitive. Um, out of the, the 15 municipalities that we benchmark ourselves against, and, and that includes the major mis- municipalities including Toronto, uh, we have the second lowest uh, water and sewer rates uh, across the province um so we do a lot of work to try and keep the rate increases as low as we possibly can while providing the valuable services that we do to the community and i think that shows where we sit in that list of comparators
0: is there still um among some people some concerns about affordability and if so what what can they do are there programs in place for them
3: there absolutely is concerns about affordability um you know we recognize uh the pressures across our community uh, and we do our absolute best to be respectful of that i mean the average resident uh, or business owner is seeing costs uh, go up all over the place, especially into 2022, whether it's gasoline or food prices and, and now water and sewer rates. So there are programs uh, that are out there to help uh, residents or businesses that find themselves with concerns with affordability. There's payment plans and things like that that can be put in place if they're having trouble Um finding the finances to pay a monthly water bill, and, and we'd encourage them to call in uh, to Electric Utilities, who's our billing provider, to speak about those options. There's also some financial assistance programs, particularly on the energy side. Um, and I know that that's, that's not water and wastewater, but if people can get some assistance on the electrical side or the natural gas side, uh, then it does provide some, uh, some extra breathing room.
0: We have, about a, we have about a minute left here, Nick. In terms of uh, the recent decision at City Hall in regards to uh, not expanding the urban boundary, they're going to focus on infill and intensification. Does that help water rates, knowing that we don't have to build new infrastructure? I mean, we have to build a, a bit, but maybe not as much?
3: Yeah, that's a complex story, Um So I'll try and keep it short. If we're expanding into the urban boundary, then the development community is going to pay for the bulk of that expansion work. Uh, So extending water mains, building new pumping stations. Uh, With the decision to remain within the urban boundary, there's going to be a lot of infill development, and we're going to have to replace and upgrade existing infrastructure. So more of the rate dollar or, or the residential um, supported uh, dollar goes into that work. But what I tell the community is that that work was going to have to be done anyway. Uh, due to the age of our system, even if we were expanding into the urban boundary, uh, we were going to have to get into the downtown core and start replacing and upgrading pipes anyway. Um, so I, I think it's probably um, balanced based on either scenario.
0: Nick, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for sharing some insight on uh, the increase in uh, water rates next year. Thanks.
3: You're very welcome. Have a great day.
0: You too. That's Nick Winters, Interim Water Director with the City of Hamilton.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: A group of Indigenous people are criticizing the City of Hamilton for dismantling local encampments, which they say continue to disproportionately impact the lives of Indigenous peoples. The news release also calls on the city to remove the statue of Queen Victoria at Gore Park as it stands as a reminder of oppression and genocide. Jordan Carrier is a member of Hamilton's Indigenous Community and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Jordan. How are you today?
4: Good morning. I'm pretty good. How about you?
0: Not too bad. Thanks for joining us uh, today. How many Indigenous people have been impacted by the dismantling of encampments here in Hamilton?
4: Uh, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but I do know that they um, indigenous peoples have historically been overrepresented in um, the homeless population.
0: So what are you hearing from indigenous people in these encampments who have been forced to 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 leave those areas?
4: Um, What what we're seeing is the continual displacement of Indigenous people by tearing down these um, encampments and people in general um, continually. Like, I'm still not understanding how tearing down an encampment is a solution to the housing crisis that these folks are are experiencing in these encampments. It just displaces them. Um, and for Indigenous peoples, is displacing them from lands that are traditionally theirs uh, once again.
0: Well, I don't want to speak with the city, but their, uh, their retort has been that, listen, we're trying to get everyone out of these encampments and into places like shelters or temporary uh, homes or facilities. Is that not happening from your aspect?
4: The shelters are often um, very quite full. Um, the last time I spoke with one of the workers that um, directly helped assist these people Um, And getting like the hotels were full, the shelters were full. And again, shelters and hotels, again, are very short term um, solutions. They're band-aids for a larger, a larger problem. And in these encampments, a lot of times they set up a community and it, it is a home for them.
0: So what is the solution? Do they just want to stay in the encampments? Is there a long-term goal? Or are they hoping the city or the province or even the federal government does something more?
4: There certainly has to be a, a larger approach. And when we look at some of the reasons what causes, you know, houselessness when we, when we think of Indigenous people, there is 500 years of colonial intergenerational trauma. And when, you know, two months ago, everybody's rushing out to wear orange shirts and say every child matters and then we're here we are still tearing down encampments and displacing indigenous peoples um and their their communities it's not the the threads aren't being tied together a lot of residential school survivors are homeless a lot of intergenerational um survivors of residential schools are houseless because of the trauma of colonialism
0: Jordan Carrier is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Among those who are criticizing the city of Hamilton for dismantling local encampments as they continue to, in their words, disproportionately impact the lives of Indigenous peoples. Do you feel Indigenous people are being unfairly targeted in these encampments?
4: Uh, Absolutely. Indigenous people, Black people, uh, racialized people are often overrepresented. Um, And a lot of these um houseless prisons all these different things and underrepresented in things like education so the systems that were designed to support um colonial and western ways of be doing and being uh, are working exactly how they're supposed to be and when we come from an indigenous lens of how we can care for community it's not continually displacing people, and in fact we're very our, a lot of our teachings are very foundational in inclusion, and so it's caring for people and it's ensuring that everybody has their needs met and and the land providing for us providing and meeting our needs, um, whether that's a place to stay on the land um and then get the food and the sustenance we need from it as well so there's just like so many threads that just seem to be not tied together when we look at it from. Um, like the municipal government's point of perspective, point of view, they're just, they're just not tying the threads together.
0: It sounds like, from uh, what I'm hearing um, from you, is that you know many of these people are being re revictimized uh, going mm-hmm. into these encampments, being forced out, wanting to go back. Uh, it, it sounds like a vicious circle.
4: It, it, yeah, absolutely, the vicious vicious cycle. Um, I think our municipal government forgets that they are also treaty partners, and we are on treaty lands. And there's responsibilities and obligations that we have to upheld to care for indigenous peoples on these lands.
0: The other part of today's news conference, uh, Jordan, is uh, the call for the city to remove the Queen Victoria statue at Gore Park. Give us uh, some um, uh, background on this and, and why make this call.
4: Um, th- this, this call came from my colleague, but, um, yeah, I think we continue to have these monuments in public spaces of our oppressors. And, you know, if we go back a few months, we went through this with the John A. St- statue, the community expressed why it is so important to continue to, to, to remove these statues that commemorate the lives of people that have violently oppressed indigenous peoples um so we continue need to amplify that message uh since they certainly didn't get it the first go around
0: Uh, we know that the sir john a mcdonald statue was ultimately uh, torn down uh do do you do you feel that's going to be the case with this uh, statue as well
4: uh i don't know i i hope that maybe the city has learned its lesson that um the people will take care like we Amongst ourselves, we will take care of ourselves. and community stepped up to the plate that time. our allies stepped up to the plate to care for indigenous community when they were hurting the most. and that was after the discovery of the unmarked graves to and we said, this is not okay. we we are re traumatized and allies said, we're, we care enough for you that we will we'll take this risk on. So I don't know if the city doesn't, you know, continue to consult and engage with Indigenous peoples and listen to Indigenous peoples, um, if a community will do that again.
0: And I understand today's news conference is going to be held at a uh, an encampment in the city? Yes. And, yes.
4: and I don't know if it's been torn down there, but I think it may have been.
0: Okay, and whereabouts is that?
4: Uh, on Strawn near um, Bay Street and Strawn by Bayfront Park.
0: Okay, and it's today at noon, is it? Yes. Excellent. Jordan, really appreciate the time. Uh, good luck with the news conference later today.
4: Thank you very much. Have a that, good
0: day. You too. That is Jordan Carrier, member of Hamilton's Indigenous Community, chatting about a, a news conference at noon today at the corner of uh, Strawn and Bay Streets at the what's being called the Strawn Encampment Community, uh, where uh, Indigenous uh, people in this community are calling for the city to, listen, uh, leave the encampments alone. Don't tor- tear them down. Don't send people to uh, homeless shelters and uh, and other facilities in town. Again, to me, and I've said this before, it's a bit of a head-scratcher to me. I want to see everyone with a, I guess, more comfortable place to be. If they feel that is where they want to be, it's it's a really sticky situation. At the end of the day, we just need more affordable housing in this city and obviously across this country.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We will win. And yeah. it, put it big as you need to put it. Black it out. We coming. Montreal, the West See you soon. Can't wait. Anything else? Let's
0: go. That is the voice of Montreal Alouettes linebacker Patrick Levels guaranteeing a win on Sunday as the Alouettes are coming to Hamilton to take on the Tiger Cats in Sunday's Eastern semifinal. It's going to be a blackout at Tim Mortons Field. You are encouraged to wear black if you're going to the game and stay tuned because you will have a chance to win two tickets to Sunday's Eastern semifinal. But before we do that, let's welcome back to the show Coach Sal, John Salavanis, to Good Morning Hamilton. Good Morning, Sal.
5: Hey, good morning, Rick. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Very well, thank you.
0: So as you heard, Patrick Lovells guaranteeing a win on Sunday. He also called out head coach Orlando Steinauer, quarterback Jeremiah Masoli, running back Don Jackson, wide receiver Brandon Banks, and said, quote, We're a team that can't be beat. Uh, come see me. Is this bulletin board material for the Thai Cats or just a bunch of hot air?
5: Uh, it's a whole bunch of hot air, but uh, you can put that up on the bulletin board if you wish. I don't think it'll make a whole lot of difference to uh, Jeremiah Masoli and his uh, uh, football team. So, you know, to me, it, it's just, uh, other than Joe Namath, no one's really guaranteed and, and come across with it.
0: Hamilton and Montreal split their season series. Hamilton beat the Alouettes in Montreal, uh, 27-10. to The Alouettes got the better of the Ticats here at Tim Hortons Field, 23-20 in overtime. Do either of those two games have any bearing on what happens on Sunday?
5: Well, I don't think so, Rick, and uh, really uh, one of the reasons is Trevor Harris, the quarterback, was not there in those early ball games. So uh, this game is really going to be decided uh, by the quarterbacks, I think. Uh, in, in so saying, they have to be able to be protected. Now, you know, there's a little bit of history behind uh, both of these quarterbacks in 2018, Hamilton defeated the crossover team, B.C., 48-8. to Mazzoli had 259 passing yards, and Hamilton scored 28 points in that first half. Now, go to 2019. Montreal traveled to Edmonton, where their current quarterback, Trevor Harris, handed them a 37-29 loss. Harris threw for 254 yards. And in the first half, completed 22 consecutive passes. So we've got two quarterbacks coming into this ball game that are very experienced in, in the playoff picture. And therefore, if, if they can be protected by their offensive line, you're going to see a real show on, on Sunday afternoon.
0: Hamilton's defense has certainly been the most consistent of the three phases of their game, offense, defense, and special teams. What do you like about this defense?
5: Well, I think the, they play very complimentary. The front uh, four guys uh, can really get some pressure on the quarterback. The linebackers are very active. They can move uh, very well in that intermediate area. And the secondary is exceptional, in my opinion. I mean, they've got, uh, I don't know how many knockdowns now, over 60 knockdowns uh, in ball games, And I think they have like uh, 16 or 17 interceptions. So, They play very complementary. The front puts the pressure on. The linebackers take away the underneath, and and the secondary uh, is able to to, uh, handle the deep ball.
0: Our guest is Coach Sal, John Salavanis. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. We're talking about Sunday's Eastern semifinal between the Tiger Cats and the Alouettes. Um, in in regards to special teams, head coach Orlando Steinauer says Michael Damagala is still uh, probably going to be the kicker on Sunday with Gabriel Ferrara still on the practice roster. The kicking game, you know, there's there's been something uh, missing from the kicking game this year uh, compared to past years, um, but any given Sunday, a kicker can have a phenomenal game. Where's your head at in terms of Hamilton's kicking game?
5: Well, like you said, you know, Hamilton's always had uh, a great kicking uh, history. You go all the way back to the 80s with Ruoff and then Osbaldison after that. Uh, Medlock comes in there, Big L, Liram, Hir- Hiralahu. Uh, You know, they've always had the good kickers uh, on their side. This has been one of those years where um, it's been a little spotty, and I really think uh, they have to pick up the pace in that uh, area, and they most uh, effectively have to avoid penalties. You know, the kicking game, a lot of times uh, the kicker himself um, is the focal point, but the penalties are what really decide Uh, a lot of what happens on special teams.
0: What's your favorite part of playoff football? You've been on the sidelines as an offensive line coach during Grey cups, playoff games. What's your favorite part about it?
5: Uh, The players really take on a new role. And in in as much as, uh, Rick, what they do, is, is it's on them. The coaches are through. Uh, I mean, you know, all the hay's in the barn. And, And the coaches just stand there and observe and make a decision once in a while. But it's always up to the players, and if the players are on top of their game, uh, then you really get uh, an exciting football game.
0: So as long as that hay doesn't catch fire, you're good. Yeah, that's (laughs) it. Don't
5: burn the barn. That's
0: right. Hey, Coach Sal, thanks for the time, and enjoy the game on Sunday.
5: All right. Thanks, Rick. Talk to you again.
0: You got it. That is Coach Sal John Salavanis as the Tiger Cats get set to host the Montreal Alouettes on Sunday.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: It is going to be a great day on Catherine Street North. I think I got the address right. Catherine Street or Cathcart Street. Oh, my gosh. Uh, No, I forget. Well, let's ask our next guest. His name is Sean Ferris. He's the executive director of Habitat Hamilton because the keys to a legacy build are going to be handed over to two families during a ceremony this morning. Sean, how are you?
6: Very good. How are you?
0: Not too bad. Is it Catherine or Cathcart? It's Catherine Street. All right. I got it. I got it right originally. I, w- I was thinking Cathcart for some reason, but Catherine is the place to be. 134 Catherine Street North, where this legacy build is now standing, and two families are going to be benefiting from it. Tell us about this project, because it was it was started in 2019, and then, well, the pandemic struck.
6: Absolutely. I, it always takes uh, quite a while to get through the planning process. Uh, this one was... Uh, Uh, special for a number of reasons, starting with uh, the donation of the property from the Diocese of Hamilton. Getting land, as you can imagine, can be uh, very, very challenging and expensive. And so when we got the land uh, donated, that was uh, a huge benefit to us. Um, We took a a single lot and we decided, heck, why not serve two families? So we put uh, two homes on it, uh, semi-detached, two-unit build um, located in the heart of Hamilton, in close proximity to public transit and uh, and amenities of course Um, it's called a legacy build because uh, our title sponsor is the Hamilton Halton Construction Association so in celebration of uh, their centennial um, they reached out to their membership to see how they could contribute and uh, donations of product and service and and cash uh, amounted to over $200,000 over the course of this build so um, you know we're very very appreciative of uh, Sue Ramsey and all the folks at the Construction Association who helped make this happen.
0: The uh, the two, the semi-detached uh, home, has that been done before to usually build single-family homes?
6: Well, we're, we're, we've been shooting to build uh, density as much as we can. We need to pack as many, um, you know, folks into a piece of property that we can, both to get value out of the property, but also, you know, uh, we're in affordable housing crisis, so we need to build as many homes as we possibly can.
0: Uh, do you envision Hamilton to play a bigger role in dealing with the affordable housing crisis going forward?
6: Oh, that's the goal, Rick. Absolutely. Uh, we're working with uh, partners at uh, Hamilton as Home, partners with the city of Hamilton, and always seeking solutions to deliver homes uh, at a more rapid rate. But, of course, those that are sustainable and uh, those that are suitable to to the families who we serve.
0: At the end of the day, though, you need partners and you need funding. That is a huge component in what you guys do.
6: Absolutely. I and mean, partners come in a variety of, of forms. You know, they may be donors of cash or product or service, like we mentioned. But, uh, of course, you know, we uh, we build with volunteers and we build with students. So we encourage uh, high school students to look into the Ontario Youth Apprenticeship Program, come on out uh, to the site, swing a hammer, and earn high school credit and learn about the trades. Um, and if, uh, if you're beyond high school, come on out as a volunteer. Um, and of course, if uh, building on a, a build site is not for you, um, we have volunteer opportunities on our board of directors, uh, also in our restore, which is our social enterprise on
0: Nash Road. Sean Ferris is the Executive Director of Habitat Hamilton, joining us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML as the keys to the legacy build is going to be handed over to two families during a ceremony this morning on 134 Catherine Street North. How cool was it to get this project done pretty close to the holidays?
6: It's always uh, great to stay home for the holidays, but honestly, Rick, we're just glad to get it done. I mean, uh, remediation started in March of last year, and we were putting the foundations in May. So this has been a, a pure pandemic build all throughout. So we couldn't necessarily have the volunteers and students support us the way that they normally would, and it took a little longer than we, we expected. So to cross this finish line is a huge accomplishment for, uh, for our partners, for our staff, and of course for our volunteers and homeowners.
0: I understand this uh, home, this semi-detached home, is energy efficient and accessible as well.
6: It has uh, features that allow it to be accessible ready. So in other words, uh, you know, places are reinforced where they can put grab bars and so on and so forth. It also has a number of uh, sustainability features. The benefit of working with donors is that you get access to product that you couldn't normally do uh, as a not-for-profit. Uh, so, for example, we have a, uh, a roof donated by EnviroShake, which is a composite roof material Um, It's extremely durable, yet environmentally friendly. And so to have that on there, it's got a beautiful cedar shake look, but it'll be there, uh, you know, for many decades to come. (laughs) Uh,
0: Talk about the sweat equity component of what Habitat Hamilton does. Is that that still uh, an item that, uh, you know, the eventual homeowners have to undertake?
6: Absolutely. So one of the components that, uh, that we have in our partnership with our homeowners is they need to contribute 500 volunteer hours. These families uh, hit the ground running with their volunteer hours. And in fact, uh, I can tell you one of the families, Nick and Cat, have exceeded their 500 hours. They can contribute that, you know, in our restore, um, you know, doing uh, work on the build site, of course, and in any other way that we can figure out a way they can drive value for Habitat Hamilton. Um, there's no true uh, monetary value of those hours, but certainly um, it helps the families recognize that they're earning this home. They're paying for it as well. Um, so uh, it really gives a sense of accomplishment and pride um, that they've, they've earned this home.
0: Yeah, and that goes a long way, too, because they know that, especially those who have contributed with, whether it's you know uh, using a measuring tape or swinging a hammer or whatever the case is, they have that, as I said, sweat equity kind of in the home, and there's, there's as you mentioned, certain pride that goes along with that.
6: Yeah, and, and knowledge of how your home was built. When you're moving from a rental to uh, a home, especially for the first time, there's things that you don't necessarily consider. You know, eventually you'll probably get a leak and you're going to need, need to know where that water shot off is so that you can protect your, your home and your family. So being in there and seeing how it was constructed, constructed gives uh, an additional insight into how things work.
0: Got about a minute. Tell us about these two families who are moving in. Uh,
2: absolutely.
6: So um, I would say uh, on the one side we have uh, Amanda. She's a single parent with two kids age six and 10. Um, She's employed by the CRA, but works on a part-time basis because uh, she provides after school care to her son who has special needs. Um, So she was living in cramped quarters with her dad and her brother, and this will give her family the space they need to to thrive and and succeed. And on the other side, we have uh, Nick and Kat who work in hospitality and social services respectively. So COVID has been particularly difficult for them. They're a blended family with three kids and uh, have been active supporters on on site completing more than their required hours.
0: Well, that's great. So congratulations to Amanda as well as Nick and Kat. And congrats to you, Sean, and Habitat Hamilton on all the great work that you've done in this community, especially with this project. Uh, Good luck with the ceremony today, and uh, we'll chat down the road.
6: Thanks so much, Rick.
0: Take care. Sean Ferris, Executive Director, Habitat Hamilton, as a semi-detached home housing two families, is going to be celebrated today. It's, uh, it's done. The keys will be handed over, and they'll move on in at 134 Catherine Street North.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I've
0: been hearing the term cuffing and cuffing season over the last number of days, and I'm like, well, what is this? And apparently it's been around for a few years. I don't know, maybe because I'm in my 40s and I'm married, uh, I don't pay attention to these sort of things, so I may have heard it, and it just hasn't, you know, registered in the old cranium. But apparently cuffing season is a thing. And Here to tell us about it is sexologist and relationship expert Dr. Jess O'Reilly. Dr. O'Reilly, welcome back to the show. How are you?
7: Good morning. Thanks for having me. I'm great.
0: All right, let's start with the basics. What in the world is cuffing season about?
7: Uh, This refers to the phenomenon of hooking up, getting into a relationship uh, as the winter months roll around, as the cold weather comes, and then perhaps having the subconscious or conscious intention of breaking it off when the warm weather comes around in the spring.
0: Okay, so why do we do this?
7: That's a good question. <laughs> you know, there are different theories. Um, some people, people say that it's hormonal, right? This notion that maybe as testosterone rises, as serotonin levels drop, maybe we're driven to partner up. I think in practical terms, in cold countries like Canada, it maybe that we're less inclined toward, you know, social gatherings and getting out. So we pair up with people we already know so that we can have that social support and interaction without having to uh, to leave the house, uh, and it's interesting. There's actually data to back it up in terms of people declaring they're in a relationship publicly more commonly during the cooler months. So there's 34% more new relationships than breakups around Christmas time or on Christmas Day, actually, and then we see a, a peak again around Valentine's. So maybe the holiday seasons have something to do with it. We want to, we want a partner to take to those events.
0: So when did it all start? Because this this is not relatively a new phenomenon, is it?
7: No, interestingly, I, I think that most human behaviors have existed for long periods of time, and then they become more visible. We talk about them more. Maybe we find a name for them. Uh, you know, we often think, oh, these are relationship trends or trends related to intimacy. But uh, many of these trends have always existed. We've just been able to identify them um, thanks to the digital world.
0: <laughs> so we're entering the second uh, stage of winter months, if you will, during the pandemic we certainly had last year. Has cuffing been heightened or diminished uh, during the pandemic?
7: That's a good question. So, uh, you know, so when we talk about cuffing, I just want to say sometimes we're doing it purposefully. We have full intention of kind of just using uh, our relationship in a temporary way. And some of us are honest about it and some of us don't, are not. And for others, it really is subconscious. We We realize that we want closeness, that we want intimacy. We want somebody to be near us and dear to us. Uh, and we don't even know, realize that we're going to break it off. But there have been trends that have shifted over the course of the pandemic. So, for example, uh, there's this trend called room mating, which involves connecting with a roommate or someone you've known for years platonically. And that has increased over the pandemic. There's a, a dating app called Plenty of Fish that, that does a, bu- a bunch of data mining around dating behaviors. And they did find an increase. And, and again, you know, with limitations on whom we can social with whom we can socialize and where we can go Uh, it makes sense that we're kind of creating our bubbles of all different types
0: (laughs) we're talking about cuffing season with dr jess o'reilly sexologist and relationship expert here on good morning hamilton on 900 chml are there rules of engagement or ground rules or do's and don'ts for those who are into cuffing
7: well, I think the most important piece with any relationship, whether we call it something kitschy or it's just what we're doing, is to really focus on honesty. Uh, and I don't even think that people intend to lie. I think that for many of us, it's very difficult to be uh, you know, honest with ourselves first. So we need to ask ourselves what we want, why we want it, what we're hoping to you know, get out of this and what we have to offer as well. Uh, I think we have a tendency to kind of blame others when we question ourselves. So let's say, you know, you have a history of cuffing uh, and you, you, instead of, you know, taking responsibility for it, you make excuses as to why you need to break it off with this person, even though you might've known that you were going to break it off from the onset. So when you catch yourself, first of all, looking for external excuses, kind of just take a moment to reflect on, on what you really want. And if you don't want something long-term and you know this from the onset, uh, don't pretend, don't make plans for next summer if, if you're going to be ditching them. Uh, if, you know, you, you, I just think we have to work on identifying what we want and then finding ways to communicate it, even when those conversations are awkward and uncomfortable.
0: Well said, it's a fascinating topic. Uh, Dr. O'Reilly, thank you very much for the time today and enjoy your day.
7: My pleasure. Same
0: to you. Thanks so much for having me. That is Dr. Jess O'Reilly, sexologist and relationship expert. You can find more information about Dr. Jess and uh, all the things that she talks about. Sexwithdrjess.com is the website.
1: Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900chml.com.
0: The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple podcast, Google podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode, and make sure you rate and review.